The following message is from King's Church 1066, based in Hastings, Bexhill and the surrounding area. For more information, head to our website, kings1066.org. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. So it was a treat to get to come back over to Hastings to see friendly faces and open God's Word together. And excited that I get to do the second message in our new series on identity. Last week, Paul launched this series, starting us to help thinking about this vital topic and the vital question of who am I? Who am I, I think, is one of the most natural, kind of commonly asked human questions. And then we all wrestle with, we all want to know who we really are. We want to find our best identity because by living out our best identity that we get to experience our best life. Identity is vital for every single one of us. And actually, before going any further, it's worth just stopping and pausing and thinking about what are we talking about when we talk about identity? Have you noticed identity is one of those words and concepts we use all the time, we talk about all the time, and we really actually stop to define it and think what we're talking about. And often when we talk about identity, we talk past each other because we're actually talking about different things. I found a really helpful way to define identity and think about it is to understand is our controlling self-understanding. So it's our self-understanding, who we view ourselves to be, how we or who we understand ourselves to be, who you believe you are, the very, very core of your being, the most fundamental thing about you. And that is controlling because what you really, truly believe about yourself deep down will inevitably have impacts on your life. What you really, truly deep down believe about yourself will shape how you think, how you feel, how you act. Our identity has a controlling impact on our life. Controlling self-understanding, I found, is a really helpful way of thinking about what we mean when we talk about identity. And one of the things that means is there are lots of things that are true of us that are not our identity. Lots of things that describe us, but that don't define us because they're not our controlling self-understanding. And identity has been a really big deal for me. I look back over my kind of three decades of life, and each one has been characterized by something of an identity crisis. There was a time in my first decade of life when I came to the belief that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember it very vividly, very strongly. I remember the fear that this secret would get found out and it would all be awful and I'd have to hide it all my life. I was wrestling with the question, who am I? I came into my teenage years, and actually that feeling had naturally gone away. But in my teenage years, as romantic and sexual desires began to emerge, I discovered that I'm attracted to other guys, that I'm gay or same-sex attracted or whatever language we want to use for that. And that was raising a whole new load of identity questions. Because the world around me, culture was saying, well, this is the most important thing about you. This is who you are, and you need to embrace this and express this and enact this in order to be true to yourself. But Christian teaching was telling me sex and marriage are reserved for lifelong relationships of a man and a woman. And I wanted to faithfully follow Jesus, so I chose and I continue to choose not to act on my same-sex desires. As lots of people say, well, you're denying who you really are. You're not being true to yourself. My sexuality has been an area I've had to wrestle with identity questions. And then I got to my third decade, and you'd think I would have dealt with my identity by then, but I hadn't. My middle of my third decade, in my 20s, I had a number of fairly major mental health meltdowns. Ended up in Christian counselling, which was a huge blessing to me. 
And one of the things I realized through that journey was that I had an incredibly unhealthy sense of identity. I could have told you all the right answers, all the Bible stuff about who I am in Christ. I could have told you all of that. But deep down, what I was really believing was that I was a freak and a weirdo. I genuinely thought that everyone assumed I was a freak and a weirdo, and I'd absorbed that, and that was shaping my sense of self, and it had horrible, horrible effects on my mental health. But through all those journeys, particularly that last journey, what I found is when we open the Word of God, we understand what God says about identity, how identity works, who we are, there is wonderful freedom from all of our identity crises. There is a solid, static, stable, life-giving identity for us to receive in Jesus. And that's what we're looking at and talking about in this series. Who am I has been a really big question for me in my life. But actually, I look back now over those decades of wrestling with identity, and I realize really there was a different question which I needed to ask first that I was really wrestling with. It wasn't just who am I, but it was how do I find who I am? How do I actually work out who I am? Do I look inside of myself, a feeling of being a girl trapped in a boy's body? Do I look inside myself for my sexual desires? Do I look at what I assume other people think about me, which was a freak and a weirdo? Or actually, do I let God define who I am? Do I receive my identity from him? How do I find who I am is the vital question we have to wrestle with with identity. It's a question we all live and answer out to all the time, and yet we don't tend to think to stop and actually explore and actually wrestle with it. But if you want to live out what the Bible says about who you are, you've got to ask that question, how do I find who I am? And we've got to find the right answer. And what I want to do with our little bit of time this morning is just to very quickly introduce you to two ways that question is commonly answered in our culture, ways that lots of us will be hearing all the time, many of us actually will be living out, shaped by our culture, but then show the Bible's better, more life-giving answer to the question, how do I find who I am? So let's just briefly look at two ways our culture would answer that question. One way would be that others decide. How do I find who I am? Well, others decide. My sense of self, that controlling self-understanding, gets shaped by what other people think of me, or at least what I assume they think of me, because let's be honest, we don't often actually always know what people really think of us. In others decide identity, your sense of self is shaped by your assumption of what other people think about you. And it kind of works on the idea that there's, there's this set of criteria, like this list of kind of things, these tick boxes that you're meant to live up to. And our assumption is everyone's evaluating us all the time against all of these criteria, and they make an evaluation, a judgment of us, and we then absorb that as our sense of self. And that can happen in all kinds of different ways across all kinds of different elements and aspects of life. It can happen in relation to your work. It could be we get a good sense of self by knowing that we do a job that people are impressed by, or that we're the best at our work, and we think people think well of me, and that makes me feel good, that gives me my identity, my sense of worth and value. could actually backfire. It could be that we have a job we think people aren't at all impressed with what I do for my work, or what I do with my, term, my time, or actually I'm not very good at my place of work, and people aren't impressed with me, it gives us a bad sense of identity can happen in education. Maybe it's being the best student at college or at school or at university, or maybe the best sports person or artist or musician, whatever it might be. And people think well of me because I'm the best. We absorb this sense of self from other people. Or it can just happen from just kind of general things of wanting to be known as kind or generous or even just a good person. 
None of which are bad things, but they get problematic when they become the things that control our sense of self. Yeah, I feel good about myself because people think well of me, or actually I feel bad about myself because people don't think well of me. So many of us live with an others-decided identity controlled by what other people think of us. But that is really not a good way of making identity. There's a whole host of problems that come when we do this. Let me just highlight two to you. One is that an others-decided identity can very easily give you an unhealthy and rather destructive sense of self. Think about it. If people can think well of you, they can also think badly of you. And you might be doing well one day because you're impressing people, but then you do something not very impressive and people's mind changes. Suddenly your identity comes crashing down. And this whole issue of we don't always know what people really think of us, and we're kind of wired often as humans to go with the negative, and we tend to assume the worst of what people think of us. It can really backfire. I've already said to you, that's what happened for me. My genuine assumption was that everyone thought I was a freak and a weirdo. I thought my looks, my personality, my likes and my dislikes, all these things marked me out as weird. I thought everyone, of course, thinks that. And so I absorbed that as my sense of self. Often, actually, we get really skewed ideas of what people are thinking. It gives us an unhealthy identity. But even if you manage to get a good identity from this others-decide approach, there's still the problem of insecurity, crushing insecurity, because it is never solid and static. You can never guarantee it's going to remain as it is. At any point, you could muck up and suddenly people think badly of you. At any point, people could change their mind about you. Your identity comes crashing down. There's no security and there's this exhausting pressure to perform, to keep on impressing people, to keep, on, uh, keep up the act. It just doesn't work. It's a really common way of living out our identity and finding our identity. It's also a really bad way. It's not good for us. We need to try something else. There's another option offered to us by the culture around us, a different answer, would be how do I find who I am? It would be that I decide. I get to decide who I am. I look inside myself. I look at my feelings. I look at my desires, and that defines who I am. And on this way of doing things, things outside don't matter. That might be your body, might be other people, traditions, religions. Nothing outside matters. And actually, the things outside have to conform and come into line with what you feel about yourself inside. And I tend to dub this an I-decide identity because it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what I think, what I choose from what I find within me. That determines who I am. And that's a narrative you will see all over the place in the world that you and I are living in. It's kind of summarized in some of the kind of inspirational slogans you'll see in a nice background on Instagram or on some kind of cheap artwork in a coffee shop somewhere. Things like always stay true to yourself and never sacrifice who you are for anyone. It's saying you decide who you are, you know who you are, doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Or never change who you are because someone else has a problem with it. And you see it in song lyrics, you see it in TV, you see it in film. The quintessential example from my childhood was the film Babe of the Sheep Pig. Anyone remember that? This is a pig that feels like it is a sheepdog. And Babe becomes the hero of the film because he rejects his piggy biology and he embraces his true self as a sheepdog and I think actually wins like a sheep herding competition. That was the good example in my childhood. The more recent example is Princess and later Queen Elsa from Frozen, who bravely rejects the restrictions that other people place on her, embraces what she finds inside, and she lets it out. She lets it go. It's an I-decide narrative. I know who I am. I'm embracing what's inside. This is who I am. Now you've got to deal with it, basically. 
All the time, we're being told this narrative of, you get to decide who you are. And then we come into kind of real life, as it were, and that gets applied in all kinds of different areas. Particularly in our culture, the most prominent examples would be that it gets applied to experiences of sexuality and gender. When it comes to gender, we're told, you may be a male-bodied person, but if you feel like a woman, then you are a woman, because your body doesn't define you. What you feel inside defines you. You decide who you are. Likewise, if you've got a female body, but you feel like a male, the same thing. And actually, we're told that our bodies and other people have to come into line with what we feel inside, and actually, we get to decide who we are. When it comes to sexuality, you and I have been told all the time by the culture that we live in that our sexual desires define us, that they are who we are, they reveal our true self. And a guy like me who's attracted to guys is told that's who you are, that's core and fundamental to your identity. You need to embrace that, you need to express that, you need to enact that to find your best life. And when someone like me, our faithfulness to Jesus, chooses not to act on my same-sex desires, I'm told, well, you're denying who you really are because we have this I-decide idea of identity in our culture, that our identity is based on what we discover inside of ourselves. But it could be applied more broadly as well. It could be anything. It could be an entrepreneurial spirit. It could be a desire for adventure. The whole kind of you do you, be true to yourself, doesn't matter what other people think, follow your heart narrative, is all this I-decide identity. It's incredibly common in the world around us. Probably some of us are living out an I-decide identity as well. Incredibly common, but again, incredibly problematic. One of the problems here is there is pressure. This narrative says only you can know who you are. No one can help you work that out. You need to embrace that to find your best life. And so if you don't work out who you are, you're going to miss out. That's a lot of pressure to carry. It's all on your back. It's your responsibility, or you're going to miss out on your best life. That's a lot of pressure. And I'm convinced that, particularly among teenagers, we're seeing the impact of that pressure. I'm convinced that's one of the things feeding into the heartbreaking mental health crisis we're currently seeing among young people. And that pressure is kind of made even stronger by the fact that, let's be honest, we look inside ourselves, and it's often really not clear who we are, if that's how we're going to find who we are. Our desires conflict. They change. They're unclear. There's a whole mess of stuff inside, right? How do I know who I am by looking inside myself? What out of the mess inside of myself is actually me? But the big problem here is none of us are really willing to be consistent. All of us can think of feelings and desires that none of us are going to say, yeah, you do you. You be true to yourself. That's who you are. We can all think of those examples quite easily. No one really believes this. As much as our culture is shouting at us all the time, no one really believes it. No one's really willing to follow it through. We're actually cherry-picking from what we find inside based on what our culture tells us we should pick who we should be. I decide is such a common answer to the question, and again, it's such a bad and problematic answer. So we need something else. We need a better way of finding who we are. We need a different answer to how do I decide, how do I find who I am, and that wonderfully is found in the answer the Christian scriptures give us. The answer we receive from God is that God decides. How do I find who I am? God decides. God declares who we are. We receive that. As creatures of the creator, the creator determines who we are, and we receive that. We allow that to shape our sense of self-understanding. 
And I think is the approach to identity you see throughout the Christian scriptures is one of those things that's never explicitly stated because it's just taken for granted everywhere. It's just assumed that our identity is rooted in what God says about us and that that is rooted in our relationship with him. You see it illustrated in the life of Jesus. Jesus' sense of self is not shaped by what people think of him, which is a really good thing because they were very mixed opinions. His sense of self isn't shaped by what he finds inside of himself. It's shaped by what God the Father says of him. He receives what God says and lets that shape his sense of self. We actually get a picture of that at the baptism of Jesus and some other places, but we'll focus there. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes down into the water. He's brought up out of the water and this voice comes from heaven. The voice of God the Father speaks over Jesus and says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In Mark 1, 11. It's God the Father declaring who Jesus is and Jesus receives that and he allows that to shape his self-understanding, shape his identity. It's a visual picture, a worked example of God decides identity in action. That's how every single one of us as a human is meant to uh, form our identity. We receive it from God. And the very best form of identity we can receive the most life-giving, uh, life-changing identity we can receive and enjoy is Christian identity. The identity we receive from God when we trust in Jesus and we follow him. And the Apostle Paul talks about this. The Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, he writes the letter to the Ephesians, which we're looking at across this series. And in Ephesians 2, so we're going to jump ahead a chapter from the bulk of this series this morning, he talks about this story of transformed identity of Christian identity, of what it is and how it works. He talks to us about the very best identity that we can receive and we can live out. Let's just briefly read it through and just unpack it just briefly to draw that out. Paul starts in Ephesians 2 with the bad news, the bad identity. The reality is we all start with a bad identity because we all start in rebellion against God. Here's what he says in the first few verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The reality is we all start life with our hearts turned away from God. We all rebel against him. We all sin, which means we miss the mark that God has set. Ultimately, we all fail to treat God as God. We all fail to give him the obedience and the allegiance and the thanksgiving that he is worthy of. And the result is a really bad identity. The things God says of us are pretty bad. We are sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. Wrath is God's just and fair punishment of sin. We are, he says, dead. We are spiritually dead, he says in verse 1. That's the bad news. That's our true identity, actually, if we have not put our faith in Jesus. It's where we all start. It should be where we all stay, but, but God acts. Paul goes on, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
Paul's talking here about a transformation of identity. The transformation offered to us in Jesus, received when we trust in Jesus, we get the very best identity. Previously, we are dead, spiritually dead. Now, he says, we are made alive in verse 5. Previously, we were children of wrath, rightly receiving and deserving God's just punishment for our sin. Now, he says, we are saved from that wrath. And now, he says, we are seated in heavenly places. We become those seated with God in heavenly places. And over this series, we work through Ephesians 1, we're going to be drawing out and picking up more of the things that are true of us because God says them true of us as followers of Jesus. But the thing I want us to notice from Ephesians 2 is how this works, how this identity works. Notice this all happens, and this is all based on the work of Christ. Yes. Christian identity is not based on what we do whether we do well or whether we do badly. Christian identity is not based on what we feel inside, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff. Christian identity is based and rooted and built on the finished work of Christ. And therefore, it can be solid and static and stable and forever life-giving. Notice two things that Paul says, two kind of motifs Paul repeats in this passage that makes that point. One motif is the motif of being in Christ being united or hidden with Christ. If this is you and this is Christ, you are hidden in him. God looks at you and he sees Christ because you are hidden in Christ. I always think at this point of morph suits. You've been of morph suits. They're like these uh, kind of spandex all in one, usually bright color things, and someone gets in them and presumably has to be zipped into them or something. I've never worn one. And you look at someone in a morph suit and they are completely encased in it. And you look at them and you can see them, but you can't not also see the morph suit. It's impossible to not see the morph suit when you see the person. When God looks at you, if you are a follower of Jesus, he sees you. He truly sees you, but he can't see you and not also see Jesus. Because you are encased, clothed in, you are in, united in, hidden in Christ. God looks at you and he sees you clothed in Jesus. And because of that, he credits to you everything that is true of Jesus. This identity comes to us based on the work of Jesus. And Paul says that time and time again in this passage. We're made alive together with Christ. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ. He shows us the immeasurable riches of kindness in Christ Jesus. Our identity is rooted not on what we do or we feel, but what Jesus has done and the fact we are being united with him. We'll see the same in Ephesians 1. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ because we are united to him. Christian identity is based on the work of Christ received through union with him. And one of the motifs in this passage, those few verses we just read, which makes this point, is about the grace of God. Paul says in verse 5, by grace we have been saved. Grace is the foundation of this new identity. And what is it? Well, handily, Paul defines it for us in verse 7. Grace is kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And just think back, remember who we are. We are those who are spiritually dead, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, Grace is kindness shown to those who are utterly undeserving. That's what grace is in Paul's theology. It's a gift given to those who are utterly undeserving. Grace isn't receiving a gift from your best mate. Grace is receiving a gift from a friend or an acquaintance whom you've hurt and you've wronged and you've offended and you've ignored. Grace is a gift you would never, could never deserve, should never deserve, and yet it's a gift given because of the goodness of the giver, 
not the goodness of the recipient. And God can give us this gift to those, to us, who are utterly undeserving because of what he's done in his son. What has done, he's done in Christ. Because Jesus on the cross took all the punishment for our sin so God can justly say that we are forgiven, that we are accepted, that we are loved, that we are adopted. It's all based on this gift given to those who are undeserving. It's all made possible by the work of Christ. Christian identity is based on the work of Christ. Not what we do, not what we feel, all on what he has done. And you can therefore probably quickly begin to see why this is so much better than an others decide identity or an I decide identity. One thing is it releases, re- releases us from pressure. There's no pressure to perform, to impress other people, to keep up the act, to get your identity. There's no pressure to look inside yourself at the mess of stuff we find inside and work out who you are. All we do is receive and embrace what God says about us. And there's freedom from insecurity. You've not got to worry about mucking up one day or people changing their mind about you. You've not got to worry about your desires coming and going and changing and moving around. This is solid and static and stable because it's based on the finished work of Christ and what God the Father thinks about that. What Jesus has done is never going to change. And what God the Father thinks about that is never going to change. Therefore, if you are in Christ, what God thinks about you is never going to change. There is security in this identity. This is the one identity in the world which gives every human heart what we really want, which is to know at every minute of every day, we are totally known and totally loved. We are accepted, delighted over, embraced, loved by a perfect father. Christian identity truly is the very best form of identity you can ever enjoy and ever receive. May the band come up at this point, please. If you're a Christian here today, all this stuff is already true of you. In the moment you put your faith in Jesus, it became true of you. Your identity is true and secure in Christ. But it might be that you're not yet experiencing the fullness and the goodness of that. Sometimes this is true of us, but we're not experiencing it. And one of the big themes of this series is going to be how do we take hold of and experience what God says is true of us? How do we experience it and enjoy it? And we're going to talk about that a lot over these coming weeks, but let me give you a three uh, kind of stage structure that I think helps us to journey into experiencing our identity. We need first to know ourselves. Have a think after today about the other society thing, the eyes aside thing. Which of those are you most likely to fall into? And what are the lies about yourself? Things God doesn't say about you that you are liable to believing about yourself. We need to get good at knowing ourselves and recognizing the wrong ways we think and the lies we believe about ourselves. And then we need to know the truth. We need to get to know what God says. We need to do more than just know it, but you can't experience it if you don't know it. There is no substitute in the Christian life for regularly reading the word of God. And one of the great questions always to ask is, what does this have to tell me about who I am in Christ, who I am as a follower of him? We need to know what God says about who we are. If you think, yeah, I want to do that, but I don't know where to start, just ask a a Christian friend or ask one of the leaders. We'd love to point you in the right directions, places we can look in Scripture, and come along week by week, and we'll be hearing that from Ephesians 1 as well. And then you have to know how to experience the truth. You see, you can know yourself a bit. You can know what the Bible says, but not really be experiencing it. We need to move stuff from our heads to our hearts so they make an experiential difference. We need to meditate 
and pray and sing. It's basically taking the truths of Scripture and pushing it deeper and deeper and deeper into us so it begins to actually become our deep down, even our subconscious self-understanding so it has that wonderful, positive, controlling impact on our life. That means we take the scripture and we don't just read it and then run away and get on with our day, but we chew it over, we marinate it, we meditate on it, we let it work deeper into us. We pray and give thanks for our identity. We pray and ask the Spirit to illuminate the eyes of our heart to know it more. We sing it. I'm convinced singing does something to push things deeper into our heart. We sing it and declare it in worship through song. It's about taking, making time and taking deliberate effort to experience and take hold of what is already true of us. And across this series, we're going to be giving practical ideas, practical tools that all of us can do to take hold of that. But my encouragement to us today is let's start that now today and let's commit ourselves over this series to moving into and journeying into a place where our identity is formed not by what people think of us or we find inside, but our identity is formed based on what God says about us and commit ourselves to doing what for some of us will be the hard work of moving into experiencing our identity. We're going to worship, declare some of these truths in just a moment. It's a chance to start doing that. And let me encourage you as we do that, just to come before God and say, God, I'm committing this season to pursuing an experience of this identity that I might live in all of the good of that.